few months ago, I, I first heard about this thing called the X-Plan, and, or the X-Strategy, and I think it's created by this guy called Bert Folks. And listen to what he says about this X-Plan, this X-Strategy. He says this, Recently, I asked kids going through addiction recovery a simple question. How many of you have found yourselves in situations where things started happening around you that you weren't comfortable with, but you stuck around mainly because you felt like you didn't have a way out? And then he says they all raised their hands, every single one of them. And then Bert Folks goes on and says this, I still recall my first time drinking beer at a friend's house in junior high school. I hated it, but I felt cornered as an adult. Now that seems silly, but it was my reality at that time. And he refers to something called peer pressure. And he says that it's a frivolous term for an often silent but very real thing. And I certainly couldn't call my parents and ask them to rescue me. I wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. And as a teen, forcing down alcohol seemed a whole lot easier than offering myself up for punishment, endless nagging and interrogation, and the potential end of freedom as I knew it. For these, real, for these reasons, we, have now, we now have something called the X-Plan in our family. This simple but powerful tool is a lifeline that our kids are free to use at any time. This is how it works. Let's say that my youngest gets dropped off at a party. If anything about the situation makes him feel uncomfortable, all he has to do is text the letter X to any of us, his mother, me, his older brother or sister, and the one who receives the text has a very basic script that they follow. Within a few minutes, they call his phone. When he answers, the conversation goes like this. Hello? Uh, something's come up, and I have to get, come get you right now. What happened? Well, I'll tell you when I get there, but be ready to leave in five minutes. I'm on my way. At that point, my son tells his friends that something's happened at home, that, it, that someone is on their way to get him, that he has to leave. In short, he has a way out. End of quotation. So in short, the X plan is a short alert sent out to someone who cares um, and who is poised and ready to intervene by responding to the alert. And today we're going to take some time to look at Psalm 90, specifically verses 12 through 17. Um, And the introduction or the preface to this psalm makes it clear that it's a psalm of Moses. And probably Moses is either reflecting on the 40 years of the Israelites wandering in the desert, or it's even written during these 40 years of wandering in the desert. So here's a little bit of a history lesson. God had led the Israelites up to the border of the promised land, ready to lead them into their new home. But because of fear and a lack of faith, the Israelites turned back, and as a result, they wandered in the desert for 40 years until an entire generation had actually died off, including Moses himself. Only Joshua and Caleb were, were to enter the, the, the promised land from the original uh, generation. And so when we look at Psalm 90, we're getting a glimpse into the mind of the godly leader who sees the people he grew up with and who he led dropping like flies. It's a beautiful psalm. And its beauty is not found in in ignoring the reality of death. Its beauty is not found in slapping a happy face and rejoicing despite Moses' mortality. There is a braveness and a courage about Psalm 90. It's a courage of a mortal man staring into the depths of eternity. It's a philosophical poem. It's a psalm, a song that takes us 
of the excessive speeds of the highway of life and parks us outside an en route service station where we can sit down, where we can grab a coffee and where we can take a moment to think. You see, if life is merely a frenetic running from one thing to another, then we're nothing but a wind-up toy. And we keep going and going until either we wind down totally or we overwind ourselves and something inside us breaks. But we're not a wind-up toy, and we know this. We're humans made in the image of God, in whose hearts, Scripture says, God has placed eternity. And so we need these times to do the countercultural thing. We need to stop and think. And maybe like Moses, we're in the middle of a desert time, a time of wandering. Maybe we're looking back uh, with regret to choices that we made or that others have made that have led to unnecessary suffering. Maybe like the Israelites, we're even raising our children in the desert that we have made. And so we're longing that we had chosen otherwise at that moment in time when we had the choice that maybe they could have, have had a different life. Maybe we're looking forward and we're hoping towards something different, something new. Maybe the Christmas season promised to be a time of hope and reconciliation, but turned out to be full of regret and heartache. Maybe we promised ourselves in Advent um, that Christmas 2017 would be less about the trappings and more about the family or Jesus or the things that truly matter. But it ended up becoming about the trappings Again, next week we're going to start journeying together through the book of Joshua, and this series will be called Inheritance. We're going to be taking a broad overview of this exciting and rather disturbing account, or sometimes rather disturbing account of the Israelites entering into the promised land. But I th- so I think it's really timely that right now we take a few minutes to look at this psalm that was most likely written in the time in between times, as the nation of Israel wandered in the desert. The Jordan River had not yet been crossed. The inheritance had not yet been seen. uh, seen. Moses was witnessing his entire generation actually dying off. And as he wrote this, he would probably be recalling, you know, the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the giving of the law, uh, the falling of manna, the plague of snakes, the water pouring from the rock, And so Moses gets thoughtful and contemplative. His mind turns to the God he serves. And in verse 1 through 11, very briefly, he describes God, Yahweh, as eternal. He says, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. In verse 1, he says this. And then in verse 2, he says this, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he describes God as eternal. He describes him as well as the timeless maker, as the creator. He says in verse 3, you return man to dust. And then again in verse 4, he says this, a thousand years in your sight are as a watch in the night. So he describes him as eternal. He describes him as timeless creator. And lastly, he describes him as judge. He says, we are brought to an end by your anger in verse 7. And then in verse 8, he says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And so, so Moses identifies God as being eternal, as the timeless creator, and judge as the one who holds us morally accountable for what we do. And finally, and this is what I love about Moses, is he points out that life is simply hard. And I think that Moses is in a good place you know, to say this, as he's in the middle of a 40-year cross-country trudge. 
he can say with a good level of authority that we're probably going to live for 70 years, 80 years if if we're lucky. And then verse 10, yet their span is but toil and trouble. Fantastic. Happy New Year. So Moses has painted a pretty bleak but altogether quite realistic view of life, toil and trouble. And what unites Moses and us is that we're trying to navigate our way through this toil and trouble in the best way that we can. It's the the human condition. And so just as Moses was looking ahead to this promised land, and so we're looking ahead to a new year. And Moses gives us, in, the, in verse 12 through 17, he gives us four great prayers that we can bring into the new year with us. And in the olden days, we might call them arrow prayers, just ones you can quickly send up without thinking much about it. Just send it up as a prayer. But now we're going to refer to them as our X-plan prayers. Easy to remember prayers that we can fire off heavenward as easy as typing x on a text and hitting send as we enter this potentially exciting but potentially hazardous new year and what these four prayers remind us is that we don't have to have it all worked out and that we don't have to go into this next year alone that God has given this, these four prayers in his inspired word of God, written by someone who understands that life is toil and trouble, in order for us to use them ourselves. These prayers are, are tailor-made to be fired off as quick as thought to our God who is eternal, who is timeless, who is creator, who is judge. And what this means is that whatever situation we're in, if we make these prayers part of our daily habit, then we can pray them back to him and trust that he's going to intervene. So let's read on from verse 12, 12 through 17. (coughs) Excuse me. 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Remember, this is on the back of your bookmark if you need it. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. (coughs) So the first prayer is in verse 12, which says, uh, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And Moses' first prayer is two words, teach us. That's our first X-plan prayer. God, teach us. Moses is in a posture of teachableness as he writes this. He's knelt at the, foot, at the feet of God and he's saying, I'm ready to learn. Would you teach me? And I love this because Moses has done it all. He's survived an infanticide. He's been the, he's been the prince of Egypt. He's been an outlaw. He's been a shepherd. He's been a revolutionary leader who's faced off against the most powerful man on the planet. He's led an, a nation of upwards of two million people And here he's saying to God, teach me, teach me. You see, with Moses, there's no facade, there's no mask. And because nothing brings out the inner realist in you more than watching an entire generation of your contemporaries 
dying off around you. Moses knew that he was mortal. He knew that it was only a matter of time between, uh, before he kicked the bucket. And the prayer that he has for himself and for his fellow mortals is teach us to number our days. That we may get a heart of wisdom. Show us that we're not going to live forever. Let that bell ring knowing that one day it's going to ring for me. And what Moses is saying is, is this. Unless God actively teaches me, I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to throw away my life. I'm going to waste my life on stuff that ultimately does not matter. And Moses' greatest fear, according to this psalm, is that he and his fellow Israelites are on their deathbed, and they look back on their life, and they say, that life was a bit of a waste, wasn't it? So Moses is saying, teach us before it's too late. I'm willing to learn Because verse 12 says that it's only as God teaches us that we get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is not innate. We aren't born with wisdom. We learn it. And we learn it from God. There's this phrase in Latin that says, memento mori. And memento mori means this, remember that you will die. And I was recently reading about this app called We Croak. We Croak. And the whole point of the app is to regularly remind yourself that you will die. And I wonder if in this new year, if you... And I looked on... It's not on Android, unfortunately. (laughs) But apparently it's on Apple. So if if you're the morbid type, then feel free to uh, download it. But... What I wonder is, in this new year, if we were to regularly remind ourselves of our own mortality, what do you think the result would actually be? If you reminded yourself on a regular, regular basis that your time on earth is limited, would you become more morose? Would you become more introspective? Maybe. You think that maybe you'd slide into inactivity, into maybe depression, faced with the bleakness of it all? Maybe, or do you think that somehow it would give you more joy? That somehow it would make you more productive, more intentionally invested in the things that truly matter? Okay, think about it. If you have only $20 in your pocket, then you're going to be really picky on what you spend that money on. There's nothing sadder than seeing someone walk up to the checkout with a big pile of things only to realize that what they thought was $100 was actually $20. You see, life is not an unlimited resource. It has a beginning and it has an end. You know, which is why people say things like, he went before his time. But here's the thing, we don't know when our time is. It might be 50 years from now, it might be next week. And so, according to Moses, in Psalm 90, our goal is not to accrue as much life as possible, but our goal is to accrue as much wisdom within the life that we have. And how do we do this? Moses says, by numbering our days. Teach us to number our days. Teach me how to invest this valuable resource of time. And we will be all, all do really good to pray this prayer. Teach us as we go into 2018. And, but he doesn't just say teach us. He also says satisfy us in verse 14. 
And I love this prayer. What does it say? It says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. But, but that first phrase, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. And I love this prayer. I love this excellent prayer because this prayer gives us the ground in which we can walk up to the creator of the universe and say to him, satisfy me, satisfy us. And I can't think of a more appropriate prayer, especially in this world of now that's looking for McNugget fixes to steak-sized hunger. You see, this world is starving for something real, something of substance, something eternal, and God has placed eternity in our hearts, and as a result, we're all ravenous. In the Wallace household, the Christmas season is a season where we flit about from one snack to another. A bit of chocolate here, a bit of shortbread there, nibble on the crackers here, um, salvage the forgotten candy cane over there. It's a season of perpetual grazing. And so I'm never really hungry, but but neither am I truly satisfied. But there's another side to the Christmas season, and that's sitting down to a big turkey dinner with my extended family, the heaping of the plate and the passing of the gravy, all these flavors and textures on one plate. It's amazing. And so we get to go up to the literal creator of the universe who knows everything, who's wise, who's glorious, who's never changing, who's stable, who's holy, and we get to say to him, satisfy us with your unfailing love, with your steadfast love. You know, maybe Moses woke up in the morning, he was eating the manna, and he was eating the quail or two, and he was being reminded of God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. And I imagine Moses saying, this manna is okay. This quail, is, it's a nice change. But Yahweh, God, would you give me yourself? Is it any surprise that Moses' face shone like the sun when he prayed prayers like this? God, I don't need anything as long as I have you. Take away the candy cane and give me the turkey dinner. You know, can you imagine all the heartaches that we would avoid and the sins that we would spurn and the temptations that we would steer clear of and the danger that we would escape if we sought to get our satisfaction in God? Here Moses is saying that the rolling stones were wrong. You can get satisfaction. It is possible. In fact, it's more than possible. It's more than probable. It's more than likely. It's a dead certainty if you seek it in God. And if Moses could find satisfaction in the middle of the desert, you can find satisfaction in God wherever you are. You can be like one of those Christian hymn writers that says, uh, if peace is, 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 is attending my way, or if there's storm-like sorrows, or if there are spiritual attacks, if trials should come, it's well with my soul. But then Moses, he carries on. He's prayed, teach us. He's prayed, satisfy us. And now he says, show us. In verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Now here, it's important that we see the flow. Moses is saying, teach me my mortality so I don't make this life a God, a substitute for you. Then I'm freed from the shackles of materialism. 
if you teach me wisdom. And this frees me up to, to, to have you satisfy me with your steadfast, unfailing love. And because all I long for, God, is you and your love, because my meditation is on your covenant faithfulness, that causes me to rejoice and be glad. And because I'm rejoicing and I'm glad, I want your fame to be broadcast. I want others to experience this as well. I want this nation to know. I want my children to know. So, God, let your work be shown. Show us your glorious power. You see, the Christian faith is not about my private walk with, with, with God. It's not just about us practicing our pious faith and hoping that somehow it rubs off on society. The Christian faith is about glorious works of power. It's about miracles. It's about God doing stuff that we cannot explain. And what happens is that as we become satisfied in God. We become dissatisfied for the non-believers that we know. As we encounter God's steadfast love, we long for others to want to experience it as well. And if you're a so-called Christian who has no heart of compassion for others, perhaps it's because you're not satisfied in God yourself. Because as God fills you and you look at your, your tiny human body and you say, don't just fill me, let your work be shown to others Show them your glorious power. And if I'm honest, I don't really know what this looks like. I really don't know. Like, I don't know what it looks like when God breaks out. But I know that this is something that that godly men and women have prayed for throughout church history. And so we look at the revivals. We look at the first great awakening of the 1700s with with John Wesley and George Whitfield. And then we look at the second great awakening in the States. And then we look at the Welsh revival of 1904 that spread around the world. And then we look at Pentecost and we look at the Azusa Street revival. And that longing starts to stir in our hearts. God, what if you were to do this again? Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Don't just work in the shadows, God, and maybe behind the scenes, but let your work be shown. But let's be careful praying for revival because this isn't a cheap prayer. Because when you see God uh, act in power and in works, life can never be the same again. This man called Elmer Towns, he warns us. He says this, when most people pray for revival, they're probably asking for a wonderful experience at church next Sunday at 11 a.m. But revival is more than a Sunday morning experience. When you pray for revival, you're asking God for life-shaking experiences that will cost you plenty. And it's, it's agonizing because in revival, you, you become terrorized over your sin and you repent. It's consuming because in revival you have no time for hobbies, for chores around the house, for work, for sleep. But let's have the courage this year to pray this to Father God. Teach us to number our days, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, and let your works be shown to your servants. And finally, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So as we are teachable, as we are satisfied, as we are expectant, we will be working. We will be doing things for the kingdom. When we've reckoned on the brevity of life, 
when we're filled with eternal things, when we've seen heaven breaking through to earth, we will want to be doing the things of God. We will realize, actually, that nothing else matters. All the things of earth will grow strangely dim, and we will want to be expending our lives on the only thing that matters, which is God's glory. We will no longer be interested in laying up treasures here on earth. Instead, we will be intent and focused on laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We will no longer serve two masters. We will serve only one. We will no longer be anxious about this life because we are teachable, satisfied, expectant servants of God. And because we're all about the things of God, because we realize that the only things that eternally matter are the eternal souls of human beings and God's glory, because our efforts and investments and intentions and energies are concentrated into this one thing, we can pray this prayer with boldness and with conviction. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We're saying to God himself, favor us. Favor us, God. We can pray this prayer with utter conviction that God will answer it because we've numbered our days, because we've discovered satisfaction in God, because we've seen works of power and God do the impossible. But we need to be working. We, we cannot pray this prayer as a church if we're sitting around doing nothing, if we're flitting for, like, like maybe butterflies from one thing to another and not putting in the hard graft and time commitment of doing work. We have no right to pray this prayer. If we're vegging out on the couch, God's not going to establish that work. If we're just accumulating cash and possessions and equity, God's not going to establish that work. But as we are teachable, satisfied, expectant Christians working for Jesus, we can, we can joyfully call out to him, let your favor rest upon us. We can say to him, be pleased with what you see. And we can say to him, would you establish it? Would you shore it up? Would you put it on good foundations? Would you, would you give it a good, healthy, robust root system? God, would you establish it? Because it's only God who can establish this work. We can't. If we try to establish it ourselves, it would be rubbish. But as God establishes it, it's stunning. So as, as the worship team comes up, let me wrap up. We started off this message by listening to a question posed by a group of teens struggling with addiction. And yeah, the question was this, how many of you have found yourself in situations where things started happening that you weren't comfortable with, but you stuck around mainly because you felt like you didn't have a way out? And they all raise their hands. And for many of us, as we stand on the doorstep of 2018, if I was to ask that here, I'm pretty sure that many of us would raise our hands as well. But the story of Jesus and the story of the Bible is that we have a way out. We have a way out. We're not stuck and hopeless. And that's the message of the cross. Our biggest problem, sin, has been dealt with absolutely, eternally, finally, and you may wish me to wish you a happy new year, but I don't wish you a happy new year. At least I don't just wish you a happy new year. What I wish you is a wisdom increasing, satisfied in God, power witnessing, God-favored new year for God's glory. 
That's what I want to see in Cornerstone this year. That's, that's, that's what I want to see in my life. And that's what I want to see in your life. What I want to see in 2018 is, is our grow groups as we, as we pray for each other, as we fellowship with each other like we've never done before. And I want to see it in our Sunday mornings as we worship together and as we refuel for the week ahead of missionary work in our workplaces and homes. And what I want to see it, and I, and I want to see this in witnessing projects get started and finished. And I want to see it in more sinners finding grace and forgiveness of sins within these four walls or even outside these four walls, preferably outside of these four walls, as you share your stories and the truth of the gospel. And I want to see it in the showroom getting completed, both phase one and phase two, and so that this place becomes a place where hospitality is practiced and lost people come home by discovering Jesus Christ. And maybe you're thinking, but I'm not there yet. I don't have that spark. I don't have that energy. Well, start off by sending God an X alert. Just say to him, I know that I'm not where I ought to be right now. Simply say this, teach me. Teach me to number my days. Teach me to number my days that I may get a heart of wisdom because this is where it all starts. And with this prayer, as you pray it over and over and over and over and over again, God will start to change your heart. And read the Bible. Start to get into the Word, or rather, let the Word of God get into you. Share your struggle with someone. Be honest with them. Share your resolve. Maybe take them out for a coffee. Join a grow group. And let these grow groups become a powerhouse of prayer and accountability and honesty as we forge onwards. Find a mentor. Find someone who who you can journey with. But most importantly, take this to Father God in prayer. We have to be praying. Leonard Ravenhill said this, A sinning man will stop praying, and a praying man will stop sinning. So pray these prayers. Teach us. Satisfy us. Show us. Favor us. Make these your prayers for 2018. We each have a bookmark. And let's make this the prayer for our church, for, for Cornerstone, throughout this new year. Whatever programs we, we have, whatever outreaches we do, whatever events we host, whatever happens, let's pray, God, teach us, satisfy us, show us, favor us. Don't allow what has been to set the course for what God wants in the future. Don't let your imagination be limited by your past experience. Trust God for something new in your own life and in the church. Trust God for something great. And as this becomes a reality, I encourage you not to just watch from the sidelines, but to be one of those who's working, that you can pray, establish the work of our hands. Be one of the ones that makes it happen. And be prepared for your horizon to get wider and wider and for God's glory to fill your vision like a beautiful sunrise. Let me close with a quotation from James Gilmore, a missionary to Mongolia in the 1800s. He said this, We rest in our day too much on the arm of flesh, on human power. But can't the same wonders be done now as of old? Don't the eyes of the Lord still run to and fro throughout the whole earth um, to show himself strong on behalf of those who who put their trust in him. Oh, that God would give me more practical faith in him. Where is now the Lord God of Elijah? 
He's waiting for Elijah to call on him. 